Welcome, everyone. Um, if you wouldn't mind turning in your Bible, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, please stand with me in honor of God's Word and follow along as I read. I'll read 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, and then flip to Mark 10, 42 to 45, and then we'll pray together. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." And now, Jesus' words in Mark 10, verses 42 to 45. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so we human beings... Um, pretty conflicted folk. <laughs> uh, not sure if you've noticed that. Probably have if you've been paying attention at all. So, for example, we love to shift the blame and give excuses when we make mistakes. And yet, we love to take the credit when we succeed. We kind of like to have our cake and eat it too, you know? And that's just one example, but Leading into our passage here for this morning in 1 Peter 5, we're definitely conflicted when it comes to power and authority. Okay, we love power and we hate it. So on the one hand, we are suspicious of authority, and oftentimes we treat authorities as guilty until proven innocent. And sometimes, given things that we've experienced or seen, it's understandable and sometimes warranted, and yet... On the other hand, we can be strangely blind to the misuse of authority when it falls in our favor. So just go to a high school football game or basketball game and listen to the way that the fans talk to the refs and you'll see what I mean. Not oftentimes shining examples of objectivity. Now, we actually have good reason to be suspicious and skeptical of authority. It's oftentimes abused and misused. 
Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And in our cultural moment, there is a deep suspicion and distrust. There's like a knee-jerk, kind of allergic reaction at times to authority and abuses of power and exposures of hypocrisy have collided, I think, with our fiercely independent hearts, this says-who heart that is in many, most of us, don't tell me what to do, those dispositions, those things collide and they create a culture where an appropriate anti-authoritarianism becomes a dangerous anti-authority posture. So, like, even people who appropriately push back against, like, bad rules can overswing and be against any rules. This kind of stuff happens all over the place. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So it doesn't help that we live also in a deeply consumeristic, have it your way, the choice is yours environment. So if you don't like what a leader is doing, you can just move on. Hey, don't challenge me. And yet, this is what I mean by us being conflicted, we love power and authority. Have you ever been frustrated with a cable company? It's a racket, right? Amen. Okay. At least that one. Um, so, so have you ever called and it's so frustrating you can't get anywhere and so you ask to speak to your boss? Can I speak to your boss? You hate it when you have this reasonable request. Why is it that the, the current customers get a worse deal than the new customers? Like, aren't we seeking to like maintain this relationship for a while or what? But your person on the line isn't authorized to make the adjustment, or, or unfortunately, there's nothing I can do. No authority, no power, right? But when you get transferred to someone with some authority to make some things happen, it's great. We love it. Again, as long as it's in our best interest, at least as we see it. So the problem is that we don't always know what's best for us, right? I mean, the Bible calls us children and sheep for good reason. We oftentimes don't know what's good for us. We need help with that from God, who is our ultimate authority, from His Word, which is a standard for truth and what's right, from His people, we need each other, from the church, and by God's appointment, the church actually is supposed to have an authority structure, and that doesn't have to have negative connotations. So let me just run a couple of verses by you. See what kind of reaction wells up from within here. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Or Hebrews 13.17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So how do those passages strike you? Do you welcome them? Do you kind of want to like stiff arm them? So here in the church, like I don't mean just our church, but in the church, Christianity, things can get a little extra sticky. I mean, we can expect certain sort of leadership from the world, but in the church it ought to be different, right? And it's often not, sadly. I mean, most of us, maybe all of us, have at least secondhand, if not firsthand, stories of abuse of authority and bad leadership. 
Well, we're not the first generation to experience this. So, in fact, I want you to flip and see something here in Ezekiel 34. So flip to the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34. You can, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 722. So there's been trouble with leadership for a long, long time. We're not the first generation to wrestle with these things. So Ezekiel 34.1 is a really key text when it comes to the shepherding of God's people. In verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. It's a pretty sad, sober picture there. And the Lord says... I am against those shepherds, and I am going to rescue my sheep. I myself am going to search for my sheep, seek them, find them, feed them. Verse 16, seek the lost, bring back the strayed, bind up the injured, strengthen the weak. And then in verse 23, it says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, son of David, a king, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And this prophesied shepherd is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why in John 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus was not a hireling such that when the Threats came, he bolted. No, he laid down his life for the sheep. He didn't feed himself on the sheep. He gave his life to feed the sheep. So God is the most powerful being in the universe. If anyone could abuse his power, it would be God because no one would have anything to say about it. There is no rival, even close, who could successfully challenge his authority. And yet, what is God like? What does he do with his authority? He uses it on our behalf. He uses it for our good, to save us, to deliver us, to rescue us, to feed us, to lead us, to serve us, to heal us. So this is the same sovereign Lord, this King Jesus, the same sovereign Lord who took up the basin and the towel, washed his disciples' feet. The author of life, in whom all things hold together. He's literally holding the universe together by his powerful word, and he voluntarily dies for us to give us life to put our lives back together. So Jesus is on the scene early on. The Jews of his time expect him to just sweep in in power and crush the Romans, their oppression. They thought that was their biggest problem. 
Even his disciples thought that. They wanted to sit in the seats of power when he brought his kingdom. And so he responded with the one text we read as part of our scripture reading in Mark 10. Jesus called his disciples to them and said, you know that those who are considered rulers among the nations, among the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, my disciples, the shepherds of my flock. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, the greatest, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the character of God, the nature of Jesus' leadership, has direct application to those who would consider leadership positions in his kingdom. So it's no surprise when these characteristics are at the heart, then, of Peter's instruction to elders in 1 Peter 5. So if you're not there already, turn to 1 Peter 5, and we're going to hear both a word of exhortation to the elders and a word of exhortation to all of us. And humility is front and center in both cases. Okay, so we need to know this, this instruction to elders, the rest of us, if you're not an elder <laughs> or not wanting to be one in the future, you still need to hear this because you need to know what you're looking for and what you're praying for, right? Because we affirm whether or not a man is qualified for this. That's what we're looking for in the next few weeks. So what's a good elder look like? Well, here it is. So we're going to see humble Christ-like leadership, point number one, characterizing the elders in the church, and we're going to see humble Christ-like followership that we are all called to in the church. Okay? So point number one, humble Christ-like leadership, verses one to four. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Do you remember what happened? You know, Peter denied Jesus, right? How many times did he deny him? Three times. Do you remember that scene at the end of the Gospel of John, the breakfast on the beach, three times restoring, reinstating Peter, three times Jesus said, do you love me? And what did Jesus say? Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So despite his denial, he was being restored, and that restoration for Peter came with a commission to shepherd the flock of God, feed Jesus' lambs, tend Jesus' sheep, feed Jesus' sheep. And now years later, Peter's writing this letter to elders at this point, this section, exhorting them to shepherd the flock among them. Notice first that the flock is God's flock. These sheep belong to God. Paul said the same thing when he was gathering the Ephesian elders to himself. It's going to be the last time he would see them in Acts 20. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. It's God's church. So Jesus is the senior pastor of Bethel Baptist Church, and every faithful 
gospel-believing church. It's his church. It's God's church, which he obtained. He owns it with his own blood. So pastors or elders of a church, they don't own the church. This isn't, it's not their church. I mean, so often, do you know how we, we do this in, our, in the way we talk about churches? Oh, that's so-and-so's church. And we name the pastor, especially probably famous pastors. Okay, I understand the point. It's a quick shorthand. But it's really not. It's really Jesus' church. And that guy happens to be one of the under-shepherds. So it's God's church, elders, pastors. Those terms are actually used interchangeably, synonymously in the New Testament. Some of them on a lay volunteer capacity, some on a vocational capacity. So elders are merely stewards, household managers, you could say. God is the shepherd. Elders are the under-shepherds. And how they are to utilize their authority is so clearly and beautifully unpacked here. I love this passage, even though it's very humbling and sobering, and it's a heavy, like, sobering text as well, because I want to live up to this, and I know our other elders do as well. So verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, these members gathered together, covenanted together, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, how? Exercising oversight, like a guardian. So this word is actually used in Hebrews 12, 15. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it. Keep your eyes peeled. Like watch out for people so that they don't miss the grace of God. Okay, so in this passage here then, to say exercising oversight is not some heavy oppressive thing like we're going to create a police state. Big brother elders are going to be watching you. Like that's not the point. It means that we want to watch out for threats like good shepherds. We watch to keep sheep out of ditches and away from wolves. We watch and we keep our eyes peeled. We want to keep our ear to the ground. We want to keep the pulse of the sheep so that if sheep are sick or injured, there are, there's responsiveness to bind up and heal. Okay, so we're to exercise this oversight not because we have to, but because we want to. Look at how Peter goes on. Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. God doesn't want shepherds who begrudge this labor. He wants willing shepherds. He wants shepherds who take delight in this work, not who just do it out of some dutiful obligation. And as you can imagine, for people who are just human, this can at times be difficult because the load can get heavy, and then another need and another need comes at you, and it's easy to begin to begrudge or resent that load, right? So, you know, in between the lines, pray for us. We need a lot of grace for this, but there's a lot of grace in the very next phrase. You see that next phrase? It's translated here as, as God would have you. Other translations say, according to the will of God. So, exercise oversight willingly, as God would have you. What does that mean? 
It's kind of an ambiguous phrase, but I think for several reasons that the most likely meaning is it literally just says, according to God. What does that mean, according to God? Well, I think the, the best meaning is probably according to how God shepherds. So shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight willingly, just like God does. What's his shepherding like? Is he sighing up in heaven? Oh, I can't believe I've got to do. I've got to like go after her again or do this with him again. I, like, I need a vacation. No, that's just not the way God is. Yahweh is the good shepherd. Like in the Old Testament, oftentimes, like we read in Ezekiel 34, there was bad leadership that plagued Israel. And so at one point in Jeremiah 3.15, he promises to replace that poor leadership that was plaguing his people. And he says, I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. What's the heart of God like? Well, again, Jesus embodies it literally, laying down his life for the sheep, instructing other shepherds to model that same heart. So, it's interesting. I, how about the parable of the lost sons? You know, it's commonly called the prodigal son, right? So that, that son goes off to the far country, you know, living like he had already just completely dishonored his father. Basically, I want you dead, so I want the inheritance now. I wish you were dead. Goes off and wastes it. But when that son comes to his senses and starts to come home, what's the heart of the father? He was watching, and he ran to meet that repentant son, and he embraced him, even though he smelled like a pigsty. And he put his best robe on him in a ring, and he honored that son. That's the heart of God. So shepherd willingly, like God, with that kind of willing heart. I love this new covenant promise in Jeremiah 32. He says, I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. That's the heart of God. That's how he shepherds. So we must shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight willingly, like God does, which means we need to pay attention to his shepherding, his leadership. So even shepherds, the key to good leading is good following. Good followership is the key to good leadership. Humble followership is the key to humble leadership because we learn how to deal with others by paying attention to how God deals with us. See that? So we must shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight willingly like God does. And then Peter goes on, exercising oversight not for shameful gain. Now, there's certainly some who use godliness as a means of gain. Some obvious examples on TV, you know, the televangelist kind of charlatan types. The point here is that true spiritual leadership is not what's in it for me. It's not driven by selfish intent. It's focused on the good of the flock. It's easy for spiritual leadership to go to someone's head. 
I mean, that's why in 1 Timothy 3, did you notice that? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Some, it, it could be dangerous to be looked up and viewed as spiritually mature, and you could kind of get puffed up by that. You would desire the role for the wrong reason, so not for shameful gain, but eagerly driven from the heart for the good of the flock. Look at verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, which again goes back to that Mark 10, don't lord it over, but instead be an example. So pray for us that we would be examples to the flock. I mean, the Bible talks about the need for this kind of imitation. You've got to see, what does this look like? What's it look like? I need something to imitate. We all tend to become like what we admire. We imitate those we admire. So Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So this is really important. This is sobering for us. I know this is serious consideration for me. And none of us are perfect. We know it very well. We're painfully aware of our weaknesses and sinfulness. We each have weaknesses along with our strengths. And so we are grateful for the, the added strength that comes from a plurality of elders, also for the accountability that comes from a plurality of elders, also the complementarity that comes from a plurality of elders because strengths and weaknesses overlap and we're stronger together. So we are not perfect, but it is such a joy to serve with these men. And I have for seven years, most of them, so Bill Hughes, Todd Metzger, Tyler Miller, Dwight Singer, myself, and Lord willing, in a few weeks, Greg Bauman and Al Huss. And I'm reading a book right now called Church Elders, How to Shepherd God's People Like Jesus. And there's a paragraph in there that I really resonated with. I wanted to read it to you. Um, and I know that Tyler would feel the same way because it talks about lay elders. And I feel this way about Tyler, even though he's a vocational elder. But listen to this. He says, I love lay elders. I am awed by men who, despite demanding work schedules and busy home lives, sacrifice time and money, tears and prayers to lead their local churches. I love watching them wrestle together through challenges, make mistakes, and mature in the process. Ordinary, flawed men fulfilling an extraordinary calling by God's grace. The elders in my congregation have truly been a band of brothers for me. I cannot imagine ministry without my fellow shepherds. Amen. So I'm telling you, now you could, you could be suspicious of me and doubt that I'm sincere. I hope that wouldn't be the case. But your elders love you and care for you. And there's a lot of ways I could unpack that. I'm not going to go into detail. But one thing that we do, we go through the directory. We have monthly meetings and we slowly go through the directory and we talk about everybody. And if we aren't sure about how someone's doing, there will be a follow-up call to find out. And we pray for you by name. So we can only get through, you know, a chunk per meeting, but we want to keep everybody. We don't want people to fall through the cracks. That's why we highlight community groups, because we need help in shepherding. We can't do it all, but all of the elders are involved in community groups in one way or another. So again, your elders love you and care for you. We know that we need to grow. We know that we don't always do it perfectly. 
but this is definitely the kind of leadership we aspire to, and I'm so encouraged because I've seen it lived out among my brothers over the years here. So, this is what an elder team is supposed to to be like. Elders that shepherd well, prove to be an example to the flock. You know, there are some transferable skills, you could say. Um, Leaders in the marketplace, maybe some of that transfers to the church. It's actually really the other way around, where some things that are true about leadership in God's Word also get mirrored in the marketplace, but the church is not a business. It's very different. So the church, the pastor's not the CEO. The elders aren't like a board of trustees, you know, where a board of trustees hires the high-level leadership and then sets policies and watches the money and evaluates and leads only at this kind of high level, but they never get their hands dirty. That's not what an elder team is supposed to be like. Elders are shepherds, and shepherds are with the sheep. They know the sheep. They care for the sheep. They feed the sheep. They protect the sheep. They love the sheep. So this kind of shepherding is hard and humbling. Sometimes it's unappreciated, but Peter says it will most certainly be honored. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus, you, elders, will receive the unfading crown of glory. So well done, good and faithful servant, is worth infinitely more than any earthly accolades or praise. So, humble Christ-like leadership, that's God's model for church leadership. So please pray that we would be marked by that. But Peter goes on then to address the rest of the church, okay? He begins with those who are younger. Look at verses 5 to 7, and we'll see humble Christ-like followership, So he talks to the younger here in verse 5. The point is not that older folks don't need to submit to elders, but rather a special word, I think, to those who are younger because they are the ones who tend to resist authority. So it's often the younger who stiffen at the idea of submission. It's almost like a spiritual adolescence that can go along with physical age, though not always, and sometimes it's the opposite. You can have some beautiful young examples and some older folks that resist any kind of leadership, even if it's good. So, Peter, listen, as one who used to be there, (laughs) remember when he was foolishly proud, even rebuking Jesus? At one point, he now, having been humbled, he says, likewise, this call to humility applies to the younger as well. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he goes on to call everyone in the church to humble Christ-like followership. We all need to humble ourselves and follow Jesus, our humble Savior and Lord. Look at it. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Oh, man. Can you imagine if we did this, like, a lot, (laughs) regularly? What if we all clothed ourselves with humility? What a crazy, wonderful, beautiful, countercultural community we would be. What a beautiful corporate witness we would be in this world where it's so often dog-eat-dog, you know, out for number one, step on people to get ahead. This is really significant. We are to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, not just under God's hand. That's in a minute. This is actually the acid test of humility before God. This is the rubber meeting the road. If you're not living out 
do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, Philippians 2. Then you're not humble. And we can have all kinds of supposed practices of humility before God in place, but if the humility rubber doesn't get to the road of our relationships, then it's just a sham. I need to hear that. Anybody else? <laughs> so let me just ask a few questions to, to maybe help us see our pride so that we can attack it, we can put it to death, and we can pray that the Lord will give us grace to be humble. Sometimes we're blind to it. Pride's so insidious, we can be so easily blind to it. So how do I respond to criticism? This is clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. How do you respond to criticism? Do you throw up walls of defense and pride? Or do you kind of lick your wounds and wallow in a puddle of self-pity? I don't deserve that because I'm better than that. Do you ever blackball people once they've criticized you? Do you mentally tear them down and criticize them if they've verbally criticized you? Do you have trouble admitting when you're wrong? Or do you honestly look in, even if, even if you need to just accept the needle of truth in the haystack of error? Although, I think, truth be told, we probably shouldn't flatter ourselves and think it's just the needle, you know, and, you know, haystack of, of misperception. Can you rejoice with those who rejoice? That's hard when you're proud. Do, do I rejoice over the gifts and success of other Christian brothers and sisters? Or how about this one? Do you, do you try to create the impression that you're better than you really are? Do you exaggerate to make yourself look better? Are you patient? I mean, pride is at the root of impatience because we want the world to revolve around us and we think we have the right for it too. Do you get easily irritated? Are you ungrateful? I mean, has God not given enough in Christ? So in light of our sin, in light of God's grace, do we have any right to be jealous or self-pitying? Okay, so I'm saying that not to kind of like <laughs> kick you, beat you down. The whole point is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Don't you want grace? We need to see it. We need God to open our eyes to see how insidious our pride is so we can repent of it and receive grace to walk in this humble Christ-like way, to follow him on the humble Christ-like road. So humility is one size fits all. <laughs> it's the clothing we all need. And of course, it comes in only one size, small. Um, okay, that was a really bad joke. All right, so why do you wear what you wear? Stop and think about your wardrobe. Why do you wear what you wear? Because eh, maybe you're comfortable in it, because it makes you look good you know, whatever. But the point is, we all have reasons why we put on certain clothes. How about the reason for putting on the, these clothes? It's, it's in the very next phrase. Because God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. I mean, don't you want God to be disposed toward you with grace and not opposition? Do you want to pick a fight with God or do you want a gift of grace from God? I mean, this is wonderfully motivating. All you need to do is see your need and be honest about it. He gives grace to the humble. So, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may, at the proper time, exalt you. It's again Peter echoing the teaching of Jesus. In Jesus' kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In Jesus' kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In Jesus' kingdom, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So do you see how important humility is here? Humility toward one another, like verse 5, and we should ponder what that looks like. You can discuss it with your community group. Humility under God, under his mighty hand, and what that looks like. Again, pondering, discussing that in our community groups. But Peter actually gives us one clear way of fleshing out this humility before God. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, verse 7, by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So you know what that means? Prayerlessness is pride. Some translations kind of make this a new sentence. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And then also, the other thing you should do is cast your cares on him. It's not what it says in Greek. It says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, casting. It's how you humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. So what's at the root of our prayerlessness Well, sometimes it's because we don't think it'll do us any good. No, he cares for you. He's willing and able, right? That's what he says. He cares for you. Sometimes at the root of our prayerlessness is, I don't have time. I've got too much to do. Really? Do you see how prideful and foolish that is? Like to cut ourselves off from the very thing we need, the very grace that we need, the very strength that we need. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. John 15. So Bethel, we need to renounce the pride of prayerlessness. Nothing, and as we kind of draw this to a close, nothing can melt the ice of the independence, the self-sufficiency that is way too natural to us, like the blazing fire of the loving humility of God toward us in Christ on the cross. So we were helpless and hopeless. Here's this all-powerful God And he chooses weakness and humiliation to powerfully deliver us. Flip back to 1 Peter 2. you got to see this gospel foundation for everything that's being said here. 1 Peter 2.21. Picking it up right in the middle of it. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep. But now... You've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's the chief shepherd. That's what he did. 
to save us. And if we stay close to that truth and that grace, this Savior, there's no room for pride at the foot of the cross. Pride does not grow in the soil at the foot of the cross. Our chief shepherd is the lamb who was slain. There is no greater proof that he cares for us than that. So let's all humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Let's cast our cares on him and humbly follow our humble Savior. And may God give us grace to give his grace to our present elders and future elders, whether it's in a few weeks or down the road, years down the road, that we might be humble followers of our chief shepherd so that we as leaders humbly lead his flock to humbly follow their chief shepherd, Jesus. And so by doing so, what's going to happen is that we will all safely make it home and find eternal exaltation. Those who humble themselves will be exalted and an unfading crown of glory. Kind of reminds you of the fighter verse, doesn't it? Anybody with me here? You make known to me the path of life. Here it is. Jesus blazed the trail. Here's the path of life, following our humble Savior. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So, let me close with... Revelation 7, the picture of this eternal exaltation, this unfading crown of glory that Peter is speaking of, where the lamb who is the shepherd is at the center. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's where we're headed. That's where our chief shepherd is leading us and he gives humble under shepherds to help lead us, and we all need to clothe ourselves with humility and humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and follow Jesus all the way home until we experience this exaltation, fullness of joy, pleasures evermore at his right hand. And so we're going to close by singing Christ is Risen, which the, t- the, the title is a little maybe misleading. It's a call for us who are prone to wander, we prone to wander sheep, to look to our strong and tender shepherd who died and rose again to rescue us so that we can follow him all the way home like we've considered here. So let's pray and then we'll sing. Oh Lord, you are our shepherd. And with you as our shepherd, we shall not want. So... Help us to renounce all pride in the face of that undeserved grace, all earned for us by our good shepherd, Jesus, who laid down his life for us to make us your sheep, the sheep of your hand, part of your flock. And we pray that you would lead us to green pastures and still waters and 
restore our souls so that we can happily, humbly follow you wherever you lead us and be a beautiful, living illustration of your great leadership. And I pray that our lives would commend others to you and be a part of drawing them onto that same path to follow you all the way home. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.